And I literally say to myself, I am not stopping until I get to the edge of the Antarctic continent. It's 77 miles away. I've never gone more than 20 miles and I'm the most exhausted and the most hungry and the most tired that I've ever been. But my mind all of a sudden forgot all of that weakness. My mind bought into, I can see myself at the finish line. 10 hours goes by, 15 hours goes by. My family's back home. It's Christmas day coincidentally. They're tracking me on this GPS tracker that they can see a signal from you know, every so often. And I stop at the same time every single day, 8 p.m. Antarctica time, 3 p.m. back home in Oregon, 9 p.m. 10 p.m. They're like looking like his dots still moving. Oh, maybe he's getting an extra hour in. Another 10 hours goes by. He's still moving, but they're starting to freak out now because they're like, what is he still moving? What's happening? He's never done this, but I'm just locked in. 25 hours goes by. 30 hours goes by. Ultimately, 32 and a half hours goes by on the very horizon. I see this post. I know there's a post that marks the edge of the continent. I'm like, I'm like, I've researched this, whatever. And I can see it in the distance. I realize I'm about to do it. I sit down on the ground for a second, just look out, take a few deep breaths, still in this flow state. And the resonance wasn't, Colin, you're the shit, man. Yo, you did this shit that no one's ever done. You're such a fucking badass. The voice was saying infinite love, infinite love an echo of just the resonance of the connection to my family, the connection to my community, the connection to the kids and the people I was trying to inspire, but ultimately just the resonance. I was alone. I was probably quite likely the most isolated human being on the entire planet at that moment, but I felt connected to it all. I felt connected to energy, to source, the universe, whatever you're, I don't know. I'm not, not particularly religious, traditionally religious person, but however you want to call that a greater power, just connected into that. And with that final last breath of energy, I walked to the edge, touched the post, and I became the first person in history to cross Antarctica solo. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. If these last few years have taught us anything, it's that solitude can definitely take a toll. But it's not just that aspect of aloneness. It's the social media distractions that pull us away from the activities that we most identify with. Enter the 12-hour walk. Explorer, record holder, and general adventure enthusiast Colin O'Brady has devised a recipe for finding peace in solitude. That's what you earn when you traverse Antarctica from one coast to the other. Here it is, episode 634. Texas, that's where all the aliens are. The leaves. So, yeah, so Texas has been like, oh, all the aliens are in Antarctica. So I was like, now that we have somebody that's actually been to Antarctica, they can talk about the pyramids and the aliens. Yeah, yeah. So I, think, gonna, I think we just spend the rest of the rest of the you know our time together talking about the flat Earth, the aliens, you know, you know, uh, the wall, things, like, things of that nature. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just a big wall in Antarctica that you can't go over because that's how they know it's well, flat. That's the ice wall, like in the Game of Thrones documentaries. <laughs> it's very true, and there's a big dragon on the other side to melt it, so it's gonna be cool. Yeah. Well, dude, yeah, thanks for coming yeah. on Power Through Radio, man. We really appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. And, uh, you know, hey. we're actually not, I mean, at least on this side of the table, not a flat earther. I don't know about this guy. But, uh, no, it's great to have you on. Thank you. Uh, great to be here with you guys. Yeah. Well, you know, as you can probably imagine, having walked across Antarctica by myself solo, I have encountered a fair share of uh, the flat earthers. They're out there, man. They're, maybe one of you are them, you know, not not pointing fingers, but uh, they're, they're out there. So just wait for the comments on this pod, you know, of all the reasons uh, I couldn't have possibly walked across the continent alone. Power Athlete Nation, we are hiring. We're looking for competent individuals that can work within a team. People that have a unique skill set that involves problem solving, hard work, and working within a large tech stack that allows us to execute everything we do on a daily basis. 
We're not looking for coaches. If you're a coach and you're into sets and reps and want to get people faster and stronger, we got a whole other avenue for you. I want you to go to academy.powerathletehq. I want you to dial into the methodology and I want you to get within the block one network and absolutely crush it. But what we're looking for is someone that can come and work within the team of Power Athlete that can work behind the scenes that could help us run this Leviathan of a company on a daily basis. Like I said, it's going to involve problem solving, project management, working within a team, working with different personalities. You have to work with me and people that have a pension for wanting to get strong and jacked. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to powerathletehq.com. I want you to scroll to the bottom. You're going to find a link that says careers. I want you to take a look at a few of the different opportunities that we've presented to you guys. I want you to look at the requirements and then I want you to hit and send me an email to careers at powerathletehq.com with a resume and a cover letter and why you think that you would be an awesome addition to Power Athlete. So once again, powerathletehq.com, scroll to the bottom to the footer. I want you to find the link for careers. I want you to take a link, shoot me that email, and I want to see who you are. Now, here's the cool part. You might know somebody that fits this description, and they might be working for somebody else. If you're able to put us on to somebody or bring somebody on, I'll pay you a finder's fee. We'll figure it out at the amount TBD. We'll negotiate it, but I'm willing to pay a finder's fee if you provide us amazing people. If you're looking for a job or you know somebody that's looking for a job and you can point us in the right direction, we will reward you. Once again, we are hiring. We're looking for people. Reach out. I'm excited to hear what you got. Now, after those words from our sponsor, back to the show. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> theoretically, if you walked across Antarctica, then how would, I mean, they, well, they, they'd be like, well, he walked across the rim. That's what I'm saying. Uh, or it's I'm, a spinning or I'm, the, or I'm Or I'm part of the conspiracy. Yes. Well, that's the easier right? one. You know, that's Here, the easier one. Right? <laughs> here's the other weird thing for me is uh, with the flat earthers, there's always such like a seven layer detailed thing where you got to go through like 75 steps for them to confirm it. Where you're like, well, what about all the other stuff we see that's round? And they're flight like, paths, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we, we watched some video where this dude analyzed all these flight paths and based off of like this like seven hour geometrical equation that involved like you know uh, string theory. This is how we know the Earth. The Earth is flat. And I'm like, but what about this stuff that we see? And uh, now, so I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick funny story, not to get us too far down the flat Earth or passes to kick things off. But we're here, you know. Well, I'll tell you a fun story, one funny story. Yes. So I get back. I get back from crossing Antarctica solo, um, you know, humbled by press and media attention in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, after doing a bunch of national media and whatever, um, the mayor calls a press conference um, and the mayor of Portland, Oregon decides that he's going to make a mayoral decree. And the day that I finished was December 26, 2018. He said, December 26 is going to be Colin O'Brady day forever into the future in uh, Portland, Oregon. So, you know, there's a mayoral decree making that. Um, and the mayor's the mayor's a cool, he's, he's summited Everest. He's been in the North pole. He's done some cool wow. expeditions. I actually know him a little bit before. So anyways, um, you know, that's kind of fun, just ceremonial kind of thing. And, and this press conference, I don't know, there was probably like three, 400 people there, something like that. It was at the big historical society and do a little Q and a sitting there. And finally, you know, the night, the night's winding down, people are starting to leave. And my family's just waiting around for me. We're going to have dinner afterwards. And as people start filing out, there's my family and there's like one dude, like standing in the corner, like of this thing. I'm like, you know, I'm talking to my mom, I'm talking to my wife. And, and they're like, I, I think there's one more person that might want to take a picture of you, ask you questions, something like that. And so I see this guy kind of hanging around, you know, you know, I'm like, but, but he's, he's, sticking to himself. And so I walk over and I said, Oh, thank you so much for coming. And he was like, Oh, finally, finally, 
finally we get to talk. And I was like, oh, great. Great. What's up, man? I'm from the CIA. I have driven 10 hours from some rural part of Northern California in the middle of nowhere. He's like, to be here, to talk to you in person. And I was waiting for all the rest of them to leave so we could have a real conversation. I I know you had to do the thing up there with the mayor or whatever, but like, for real, man, for real. Now it's just the two of us. What was it like on the, at the edge? You know, the edge, like you you saw, you, you went there to the edge. I'm like, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know, the edge of the world because he was a fourth is flat. And I started cracking up. I was like, this is fucking hilarious, man. Were you looking around for cameras and asking no, Kuchu like, to jump like, out and punk you? Because I thought, I thought he was joking. I thought he was joking. And then I was like, oh, damn. Like, you are being dead serious. And I was just, I was like, oh, man. Like, you know, I, I know. I didn't have the heart to just, like, crush his dreams. I was just like, you know, that just wasn't my experience there. And he was like, oh, okay. So you got, are people listening? He basically like walked away. Like, oh, I get it. You got to stay. But you and I, he was like, looked at me like winked, like, but you and I both know the real story, the real story. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, man, uh, flat earth conspiracy is real. People buy into it deep. I was going to say, uh, we just kind of dropped people into the middle of this conversation. I saw, you know, so would you do us a favor and, uh, you know, give a little bit of bio, a little bit of background and more importantly, like, tell people because uh the accomplishments are pretty fantastic so so for the people that don't yeah no i i appreciate that yeah so um colin o'brady um i am uh i guess professional endurance athlete explorer adventurer um i have 10 world records um for various things and expeditions as we talked about i was the first person in history to cross antarctica solo unsupported by resupplies and fully human powered so that had never been done before uh several other world records for speed climbing and mountains i was the fastest to complete something called the explorer's grand slam so that's to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents as well as go to the north and south pole includes everest denali kilimanjaro etc all that in 139 days uh speed record for the 50 high points which is the tallest mountain on each of the 50 u.s states that at all 50 and 21 days um i did other crazy world first which we could talk about something i'd never done before before setting my mind on it but i me and a team of others we were the first people to ever row a boat across drake passage so no sail no motor nothing just us rowing a boat and that's from the southern tip of south america to antarctica drake passage is known to be the most dangerous ocean passage in the world we hit 40 foot swells and icebergs and things like that so rowed a boat across there so th- th- those are the types of things that i'm into um but also you know passionate in a lot of other ways, uh, you know, entrepreneur, business person. Um, you know, I've written, a, I've written a couple books at this point. My first book, The Impossible First, was a New York Times bestseller um, memoir about the Antarctica crossing. And I think we'll we'll get into it more today, but excited. My new book's coming out. Uh, it's called The 12-Hour Walk, which is really a deep dive on, on mindset set, how we can overcome limiting beliefs, train our mind, and ultimately has a call to action for everyone that I believe that in just one day, and the subtitle is invest one day, conquer your mind and unlock your best life. So a tool in there and a call to action for a one day prescription that's accessible to anyone at no cost that I really think is, is a game changing um, thing. So I'm excited to talk about that as well. So yeah, man, that, that's who I am. I'm, I'm lots of other things as well, but uh, that, that's a good place to start, I suppose. So how, I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, like origin story is pretty amazing. Like you decided to go travel, end up in Thailand, go jump on some flaming jump rope, um, you know, burn yourself up. And all of a sudden you're, you know, in some hospital and deal and your mom comes in and kind of challenged you within it. Was this something that you had always had, uh, you know, this kind of like, you know, uh, daredevil, uh, unbreakable deal, or was it something that kind of matured within that moment? You know, it's funny, like it's easy, um, 
Sorry, there's a sound in the room I'm in. I apologize. I'm in Spain right now. Um, no problem. It's probably the flat earthers. But then they found you. I think you. it's they the flat earthers on a, on, a, uh, on a landline. Uh, I haven't seen one of those in a long time in this apartment. I apologize for that, everyone listening. Hopefully that's a comeback. Um, anyways, the you know, it's very easy, I think, to categorize the things that I've done. I just told you a laundry list of things where I could have easily, you know, killed myself or, you know, whatever um, to say, Oh God, this guy's such a risk taker. This guy's, you know, such living on the edge. Um, and clearly I'm, I'm willing to accept some level of risk, but I don't really characterize myself. I don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie, a thrill seeker. Um, I think I am curious, curious for myself and for others about human potential, about pushing our bodies to our limits and finding those edges. Um, but not in a, you know, overtly reckless way, like, Oh, let's just, you know, let's play a game of Russian roulette. I hope it, I hope I don't, you know, kill myself here. So I don't really think of it that way, but I do think, you know, the origin story is important. And I think that throughout my entire life, there's been a lot of grit. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money as a kid. Um, but I had a mother, as you mentioned in this burn accident, my mother, my entire life though, it was just really saying to me like, Hey, like you can do anything you set your mind to, even though we didn't, we didn't have a lot, you know, she was really incepting with that mindset, you know, work hard, train hard, you know, dream big. Um, and I think that played out throughout my life, but certainly, you know, that was a great, you know, cliff notes on that burn story. We don't even necessarily go deeper on the story itself, but that was a massive setback in my life. You know, I had been a collegiate swimmer. I was a nationally ranked swimmer, soccer player, swam in college and went on a trip around the world. I painted houses when I was uh, a kid all the way through high school and into college and said, you know, I'm going to put, I'm going to suck with thousand bucks every end of every summer. And by the time I graduate from college, I'm going to have enough for a plane ticket and, you know, few bucks to sleep on the ground at some youth hostels and a few beers and, you know, hitchhike or whatever, just get by on the cheap. But I want to see the world because I wasn't, you know, didn't have that experience when I was a kid growing up. And that was great. But then I get burned in this fire. I'm told by Thai doctors, I will never walk again normally. They look at me and I say, you'll never walk again normally. Um, and it was a massive turning point in my life where I remember that feeling in that Thai hospital, getting that news, the physical pain was terrible. I burned 25% of my body. There's a cat running around my bed in the ICU, but more than anything, I remember the emotional trauma of somebody saying, you know, Hey, you're never going to be the athlete you were. You're not going to be able body. And I mean, you guys are all about athletics and training and everything that you guys around me just put somebody just instantly in one instant takes that away from you. And who took it away? Me. I took it away from myself. Like I was an idiot. And I said, Hey, I should jump a flaming jump rope. Like I messed up to the maximal change my life. But my mother comes into that room and she says to me, I know now she was actually, you know, in the hospital wings, crying with the doctors and pleading for news, but she never showed me that fear. Instead, she came into my room every single day saying, what do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's set a goal. And I was like, mom, a goal, like, you know, like my life as I know it is over. She's like, no, close your eyes and visualize what you want to do getting out of here. And I finally played along with her. I closed my eyes. And for whatever reason, I picture like the Kona Ironman NBC coverage from a kid. I'm like, Oh, triathlon. I don't know. I guess it's some deep sea to go. Maybe one day I can finish a triathlon. And she says, great. And she could have easily said, yo, no, I said, set a goal, but look at your legs. Like let's set something a little more realistic, you know? And she had said, says, great, let's set this goal. And triathlon is focused and fixed in my mind. And for the next 18 months, again, I won't get into all the details, but learn how to walk again, normally get out of a wheelchair, fly back to the United States, et cetera. And I sign up for the Chicago triathlon. I race a Chicago triathlon and I eventually win that race. So I didn't just finish the race, but I placed first out of, you know, 5,000 other participants on the day. But your original question is about that. I always have that in me. 
in that moment of crossing that finish line, of the triathlon, I didn't look back and go like, you know what? I always knew I was a superhuman athlete. I'm, I'm a badass. I'm so much better than everyone else. No, no, no. the opposite. My mind went back to that Thai hospital and said, thank God my mother was there because I on left up to my own faculties was going to go down the most negative downward spiral, destructive mindset. But my mother, I, I call it this now. I didn't call it this at the time, but it's a core part of the book. I call it a possible mindset. My mom equipped me with an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. And she said, what? Yes, bad situation, but let's get through it. And so from that moment, and this was, you know, 14 years ago or something like that, I see so many other butterfly and ripple effects throughout the last 14 years, these world records, you know, all this stuff we could talk about. But that moment, my mother, the foundational training, so to speak, of not just my body. Sure, I had great coaches, body. We'll talk about the body side of it. But the mind side of it, my mom saying, hey, if you don't believe this, if you can't visualize a better future for yourself, you're not going to be anywhere. And that's my mind went back to at that finish line of the triathlon. My mind's got back there so many other times. So forgive the long answer, but I think Man, it's been a part of me. But I, I don't think that answers. it's an innate. I don't know that it's an innate part of me. Right. I, I think that. I have been, you know, fortunate to have some amazing influences in my life. And part of the mission with the 12 hour walk is to say like, Hey, like I'm no different than you or you or you or any person listening. We all have the strength inside of us. And there's a way to conjure that, that I think we, we all have access and the ability to do. Yeah. And you mentioned the 12 hour walk and I had the opportunity to get into it in the, the start of it. You were in a position like many people out there, you were trapped in your own home up there in the, the, uh, the top west what's i don't know I've been pacific northwest pacific, pacific, oh, northwest. pacific northwest yeah we're all like the uh ipas mountain biking and uh hippies totally Live. yeah perfect that's, yeah, that's part of the world <laughs> yeah. yeah not not my cup of tea but then you're trapped up there with all these people and you wanted to <laughs> i went to berkeley so this is uh this is just uh, an ongoing thing texas from texas love, obviously there, there you go yeah, there so you that's a good banter. i like that i like but that you you dropped us right into that that mindset that moment where you got complacent you got lazy you were told not to do anything and you didn't but it it, it just you had this innate itch now that you've developed conquering the world and you wanted to turn it into something even though the world was telling you not to you wanted to create action and that's the that's the dawn of this book yeah absolutely you know i'm 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 literally i, I just published my other book ironically in early 2020 uh, i was planning to go on an everest expedition right after that i've been on this expedition um you know i planning this with my wife and as we all know you know march of 2020 boom the world just changes right everyone's world changes shifts you know the world's never the same um and we end up going to a, a cabin that my family has on the Oregon coast. It's just my, me and my wife and our, and our dog kind of hold up there for a couple of months, you know, watching the news, listening to all the, you know, horrible stories coming out around the world, stay at home. Don't leave, you know, all the things that we all live through. And I found myself, you know, I guess not that dissimilar to the mindset of that Thai hospital of just, just, just the negative, like the fear loop of the news and the scroll in the social media. And I'm a social guy, like not a lot of interactions with other people and FaceTime my family, make sure everyone's okay. And I'm just like, man, like I feel terrible. Like I'm like sitting on my couch. I'm not even like changing out of my, you know, pajamas any given day. Um, and I thought back in my mind, I'm trying to like, kind of like grasp for straws a little bit. I'm like, man, like when was the last time that I felt like at peace? like in my body, mind, strong, you know, in my soul, like, when was that? And ironically, where I went to in my mind was 
it was when I was crossing Antarctica solo. Now I pulled a 375 pound sled across Antarctica filled with food and fuel. I was, I was eating 7,000 calories a day, which sounds like a ridiculous amount, but I was burning 10,000 calories a day. So you multiply that by 54 days. And I was a bag of bones at the end, ribs sticking out, hips sticking out. You know, people have tried this crossing before and had to, you know, someone died trying, someone had to eject because they ran out of food. Like I'm like on my absolute limit. Um, how many miles was, was that? 930. 900, 932 miles. Uh, I imagine I'd probably zigzagged a little bit. So we could probably add a, you know, some, some additional to that, but the route was 932 miles from one coast via the South pole to the opposing, um, ice shelf, uh, coast. And, um, so basically every single day I pulled my sled for 12 hours because the math, like if I didn't pull my sled 12 hours, I was going to run out of food. I wasn't going to get far enough. And so my days were 12 hours. Um, and you know, to add to that, there's five hours of chores on either side. I'm setting up my tent myself. I'm melting snow and ice and turning it into water. I mean, there's not the 12 hours is me walking the rest of the time. There's all sorts of other things that survive in Antarctica. And I couldn't take a day off, meaning average temperatures, minus 30, minus 40, but a bunch of the days, majority of the days, there's 50, 60 mile per hour headwinds. The wind chills minus 70 and I'm still getting up every single day. Boom, 12 hours, boom, 12 hours. And my other book, the impossible first gets in the whole story, which is, you know, I was actually racing another guy, this British military captain as a whole sort of intensity of, of that story, back and forth battle there, psychological, physical, et cetera. But when I'm sitting back in my Oregon coast house during COVID, I'm like, man, Despite the intensity of that environment, there was something so calm and peaceful for me. What was it? What was it? And I realized like disconnecting for that period of time. Now, I'm not recommending people go walk across Antarctica for 54 days by themselves, but there was something simple about just being like, man, I didn't have like phone. I wasn't reading the news. I wasn't this. And I just looked over my wife and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for a long walk by myself tomorrow. And I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode, basically. As simple as that. Just like the Oregon coast. She's like, okay, like we're doing nothing. We're sitting here like waiting out this pandemic. Uh, at least we all thought at the time, oh, this will, this will blow over in a month. Three you know, weeks to flatten the curve. Yeah, what we were told. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, so I go for this walk. It's all day. And I come back and I'm like, wow, like I feel for the first time since all this lockdown, this COVID, whatever, like the best that I felt again, physically, mentally, spiritually, et cetera, just centered. And so I, I it, it just kind of a, a light bulb sprung in my mind, which is like, oh, I love my Antarctica cross. And don't get me wrong, it's going to be something I'm proud of for the rest of my life, um, cherish that memory. But is there a way to tap back into that mindset, that peace, that calm, that intensity, that body-mind connection without going all the way to Antarctica? So I called some other friends and I said, hey, this might sound ridiculous, but I don't even know, I'm not doing anything right now. Try this thing. It's called the 12-hour walk. Like, what is it? Okay. Walk out your front door, put your phone on airplane mode and go for a 12 hour walk, but I can't walk for 12 hours. Yeah, it's fine. Take as many breaks as you want. Sit down. I don't care if you go one mile or 50 miles. This is a mental exercise more than it is physical. You don't got to train for it. You don't have to prepare for it. Literally take a hundred breaks if you feel like you need to, but the only thing you can't do is turn your phone on, check your social media, throw on a podcast. Don't get around guys. I like podcasts. Just one day without podcasts. So, you know, I love what you guys are doing here. Um, <laughs> but you know, you're one, not going to hurt our feelings, day. dude. Don't sweat it. What one, one day, one day. And it has been amazing. The amount of people that have taken this walk. And I, you know, I'll ask you guys, like, what's the longest you've spent in the last, let's, let's, let's call it the last 10 years. You know, that this chapter of your life where you have had no external inputs. 
So every time you check your phone, the clock resets. Sleeping doesn't count. Every time your kids walk in the room, clock resets. Music is on, clock resets. You, you know, TV is on, clock resets. Like what's the longest period of time that you have experienced that state of mind? My fast thinking is we used to take, uh, we used to travel the world, coach coaches. I mean, some of those flights were, were 12 hours. Yeah, but so you were aimed, watching something. I know, aim yeah. to read, but... I mean, Tom Cruise movies are just so tempting. Um, <laughs> Man, that's a really good point. I, I um, probably doing some form of work here. Uh, we yeah. li- I, we live out here in the middle of Texas, and um, uh, you know, like uh, I fabricate and weld and like build trucks and like as a hobby, and then you know we do a bunch of ranch work and stuff. I mean, probably yeah. in the shop, uh, you know, like where, you know, the, the radio's on and I put my, I want no part of answering my phone. And so yeah. I put it on and it's pretty funny because my wife gets pissed. She'll actually send the kids up to come find me because she knows <laughs> I have my phone off. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be like, dad, mom said you're, you know, haven't answered. And, um, so probably in the shop or, uh, like doing something around here. Like we went out on, man, it was, uh. Right after the week after Christmas, we have a, uh, the guy that we got the property from built a dam in the fifties and it got overgrown and we went out there with chainsaws and we're out there for like 12 hours, like just cutting stuff down. And it was amazing because mm-hmm. I forgot my phone. It's a, uh, it, it's something where in the moment, at least for me, like it doesn't feel like a big thing. But then the minute that all of a sudden you kind of like mentally think about it, you think like, Oh my God, wait a minute. Like I haven't checked my phone in 12 hours. What if somebody died or what if the whole world burned down? And then you're like, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And the- I, I, I'm on social media constantly. Like I use, I love technology. Like I, this is not me as like a, Oh, Hey, you know, let's go back to the stone age. You know, like I, I'm a you know big pro technology person. Um, and even what you said, which is, you know, you know, working on a project specifically welding or, you know, you're, you know, with a lot of people, your phone's off, but you know, maybe with a buddy cut, you know, cutting down trees or whatever you guys are doing. Even that is, is more inputs than the 12 hour walk, you know, which is to say like, there is a hard reset that we can do. And it's one day. Like, I'm not saying like train for this for a year. And then, you know, you just sit in silence like a monk for 10 days. And this um, it's like, literally, man, like you got a pair of shoes, put a day on your calendar, walk outside your soccer center's house, spend a day by yourself. And, you know, I've even built an app to support this, which is ironic, right? Because of technology, but the app, what it does, <laughs> it puts your phone in, put your phone in airplane mode. And, but it still gives you a clock. And it still gives you a map so you don't get lost. It tracks where you're walking, you know, walking. So, you, you know, you know where you're going, like a Google Maps, you know, things. And at the end, you're like, I completed the 12-hour walk. And, you, you know, you get an email and some love for me to say, hey, congratulations. Um, but the idea itself is simple, but the power behind it, it is deep. The power behind it is immense. You know, the book itself, it breaks down the 10 most common limiting beliefs that we all have. So I felt this, you felt this. I'm pretty sure we've all felt this at some time. It's I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I'm not strong enough. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? It's that negative voice that we're all aware of. I mean, I, you know, I've done some things in my life, but I still have that man. And I throw you in. It's, it's not like some scientific research, you know, you know, kind of heavy textbook. You know, this is you guys read read pieces of it. It sounds like, you know, this throws you in to right into some deep adventure stories. You know, you're 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 on a rowboat with me and it's 40 foot swells and the, the water's crashing over your head. You know, it's a fast read it's a page turner. But at its core, it's about saying like, hey, look, I've experienced all these limiting beliefs, but I figured out how to overcome them and thrive. And so can you. And that possible mindset I talked about, the empowered way of thinking to unlock life of limitless possibilities, we have these limiting beliefs 
And I fundamentally believe if you invest this one day in yourself, you can rewrite those limiting beliefs. You can go from saying, I hate being uncomfortable to, whoa, stepping outside my comfort zone, I can grow. That's the possible mindset. Or, you know what? I don't have enough time for this, that, and your thing. All of a sudden you organize yourself, you take this one day and you're like, oh yeah, time is finite, but I can reorganize my time to, to accomplish the things I want to accomplish. Or I'm not afraid of failure anymore, or I'm not afraid of criticism anymore. And a lot of that can come through in the walk. And, and why the correlation is there is this. If you're on the other side, you're listening to this right now and you're hearing this for the first time, a like 12 hour walk by myself like this, whatever. My bet is that actually a bunch of limiting beliefs popped up in your head, which is like, man, I'd be so bored. Or like, I can't walk for that long. My feet are going to hurt. Or, you know, my wife would never let, and we got four kids, you know, my wife's never going to let me like take a Saturday and like, well, I don't have enough time for this kind of thing. This is nonsense, right? Those limiting beliefs that just popped up in your head in relationship to the 12 hour walk are most likely the exact same limiting beliefs that are holding you back from actually living your best life. Meaning this isn't the first time you've had that limiting belief. That limiting belief is playing out when you're thinking about, you know, you know, taking that adventure you always want to take, starting that business you always want to start, pursuing that passion, going after that athletic goal. You're, you're actually, this is just you looping. So the 12-hour walk, the, the, the physicality of the challenge, but also the processing through it, is not just the 12 hours itself, but it's a mirror that says, oh, hey, man, just a little wink to you like, oh, you're already running this loop. And you're running this loop, not just because of this one silly idea that you heard in a podcast, but a 12 hour walk, but these limiting beliefs are holding you back. But when you actually commit to the walk, you take the walk, you all of a sudden go, man, when I first heard about this idea, I had these five excuses. I had these five limiting beliefs. I overcame them all. I completed the 12 hour walk. And that proves to me that I can actually overcome those in all of the different occurrences that I appear throughout the rest of my life and therefore can lead, you know, the life that I want, the my best life. And it's interesting as you're talking, uh, two things. Uh, one, I was thinking about our settlers, like, uh, you know, basically coming West in wagons and basically walking from, let's say like, you know, somewhere on the East coast to, to California and getting over the mountains and just basically walking for months at a time with nothing else to do other than just keep moving. And to think like how far we've come, we're now like, Oh my God, hours. you want me to walk without technology and without doing something for 12 hours. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty right. fascinating to like, think of how far we've come or how far we've fallen, depending on how you look at it. And then the other thing, um, similar story, uh, I, I played in the NFL, um, and my very first NFL start at the end of the second half, I ruptured my patellar tendon and mm -hmm. they carted me off the field and the doctor looked at it, they x-rayed it and said, um, we've never had anybody come back from this injury. Your career's finished. And, uh, that moment of like, fuck these people, I'm going to prove them all wrong. And then coming back mm -hmm. and starting 16 games that next year was like, you know, like my, it wasn't necessarily my parents were like, we believe in you. I was literally like, I'm going to prove these people wrong. Hell so I yeah. had this like feeling of like, fuck these people. I just got to the party and now they're already kicking me out. I'm not going. And so as yeah. you were telling that story, I've been in that moment of like self doubt and this isn't going to work. And what, what am I going to do? And then you're like, I'm just going to keep moving forward and prove these people wrong. So that's uh yeah. I mean, what it's, it's whatever, you know, it, it you said it, it can come from so many different ways that, you know, like I said, for me, that my mother was such a, an important moment when I was facing that circumstance, whether that's you just be like, man, this is my lifelong dream to be in the NFL. And I'm here for one day, one game. And all of a sudden it's take, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going away that easy. Like, well, this is my dream. What, what I was yeah. so scared of is like, I, I wanted to like, uh, this guy, who is this guy he played? He started one game. 
Like yeah. I did, it, it was this feeling that like I got here and this wasn't going to be my story. Like, yeah, the, yeah, I don't want this to be the end of the story, right? You know. Yeah. And then I got to yeah. go play for another ten years, so it was. Uh, I, I love that. Yeah, no, that's it was it, man. That same feeling, and I like as, as I was reading through your deal, and like, like I've been in that moment, and uh, I've done a lot of stupid things. When I was like, oh, jump rope, uh, flaming jump rope, that sounds like something I would totally do. Should I do crossovers? <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Double dutch? Like, <laughs> like as I was, I was sitting there thinking, I would have been the next dude in line, or like, hold on, hold on, let me go first. I'll warm it up for the you. Ultimate hot pepper. Yeah, I, I like. Yeah. As I was reading it, I was like, man, that is so something that I would do. And then here it is, and gets you in this situation. And uh, I mean, it's it's um, you know, like as you like like going through these different stories, like this idea, and I'm sure you've heard this at nauseum, dude. Like this uh, immovable spirit, and like you know, this will to survive. And I'm sure people have tried to paint it. And and I, I really like your deal, where it's like I just wanted to do something you know, something epic. And this is what I set my mind to. What That's also, I yeah. want to get into combining both these. Colin, you said time is finite. And, and John, the, the interesting thing that you said right there, just this, oh, you had this goal or this finite goal. But in the inter, in the uh, presentation that you had at the beginning of the book, you had a gentleman similar to our flat earther that walked up to you and hmm. he thanked you but he didn't have an Everest and you're trying to pull something out of this, this old man and almost like the express, the experience that you write, he wasted his life mm-hmm. and you start the book out like shaking the reader, dude, set a freaking goal right now before you're this old, sorry, rich old man. So like, yeah, no, a hundred percent. Yeah. What was the power and the impact there from this realizing, oh my God, this guy is pouring his soul into me that he wasted his life. Don't do it. Mm. No, a hundred percent. You know, um, I want to double click on something you said real quick, which is about the settlers. It just made me smile, Uh. which is that I feel proud of this concept, this idea, whatever, but I also be the first to acknowledge that like, I'm, it's almost like, I don't want to say lofting a softball, but it's like, this is in our DNA. Like you take the settlers and then you go back, you know, another hundred years or a thousand years before that. That was like human beings have been like, we could say like, maybe you're not like the best mathematician of this. And that's a skill acquired over time or whatever. Like, obviously, you know, the, the asterisks, which is those of us who aren't able-bodied or can't walk or whatever, but like in general, human beings, healthy, you know, normal, you know, human beings have, the ability to walk, right? It's one of the first things that we do. And so it's really pressing back into something that we've been doing for a very, very long time and just kind of shaking people and saying like, hey, like this is something we all know how to do. It's accessible. And that's why we can dive into it. But your point about sort of the intro of, of this book and, and really the the impetus for, um, you know, wanting to share this story, which is, again, you know, I'm proud of, of my accomplishments. Um But the thing that lights me up the most is being able to share those stories with people in a way that allows them to harness their power inside of themselves. Um, And the way, one of the ways that I frame that, as you mentioned, is, is asking a simple question. I started asking actually this this question to elementary school kids. So I, but a bunch of nonprofit work. My wife and I started a nonprofit back in 2015. That was all around inspiring kids. We still do the work, but inspiring kids to get outside, move their bodies in the back of healthy lives, you know, as childhood obesity is skyrocketing and stuff like that. So started spending a bunch of time in school gymnasiums. And, you know, as my public profile has grown, you know, we've done tons of these and I love it. One question I ask kids, you know, there's elementary school kids. I say, kids, what's your Everest? And when I was your age, I wanted to climb Everest. I dreamed of, I know how I was going to get there, but that's what I wanted to do. But I don't, you don't need to go climb mountains. What's your Everest. And what's amazing is that in a room full of kids, 
you know, I would say, you know, fifth grade and younger, I'm 500 kids in the gymnasium. I'll get 499 hands pop up. You know, maybe the one shy kid in the back of the room doesn't raise his hand, but every single kid raised their hand and wants to tell me. My Mount Everest to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. My Mount Everest to make sure the snow leopards get off the endangered species list. My Everest is to be, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is that kids are dreaming. And what I realized in that moment is that kids, kids, just like we were born and pretty quickly in our first year or two of life, we figure out how to walk, even though we fall down a million times trying to figure it out as a, you know, 12 month old baby. Kids are born with the possible mindset, meaning under 10, most kids haven't been knocked down by the quote unquote re hardships and reality of life. Our minds are hardwired to actually believe in infinite possibilities of one's life. But I share this story in the opening about an older gentleman who pulled me aside at a, a, a speaking engagement. Um, you know, like I said, I, I peg his age at, you know, 75, 80 years old. Guy was gajillionaire, had all the money in the world and pulls me aside as I, as I share in, in the opening of this book. And he's like, man, I don't know what my Everest is. I don't know what my Everest was. I've always been so caught up in my life and now I'm this old man. And he's basically offering regret being like, I don't have time anymore to change it. Now, I, I'm, I'm oriented towards a very optimistic outlook, which I liked, and I said to him in that moment, and I share it in the book, which is, but you still have some amount of time, so we can talk about that, but that's beside the larger point. But the larger point is, is if you're coming across this book, you're thinking of myself, I'm 40 years old, I'm middle-aged, whatever, you know, life hasn't, you know, my 10-year-old self would be so disappointed in me or whatever, like, you got another, you got lots of years to go. Like you can shift this right now. And so to your point, I encourage people right off the get-go to say, say, give me something. Forget about the constraints, forget about the limiting beliefs. If, if possibilities are limitless, like, you know, humor me for a second. If possibilities were limitless, tell me what your life would look like. What would you be doing? What would that look like? Paint that picture, set that goal for yourself, set that Everest. And now, a lot of people have an answer to that, which is great. But one answer I do get sometimes is, but what if I don't know what my Everest is? I can point people in a couple of directions. One's a visualization of just give me your, just paint your picture of your best life and let's talk about that. But the other is the 12 hour walk. It's a walking meditation. It's a moment to reflect in this. If you really, really, really racking your brain and you actually can't think of one goal or one thing that you want to dedicate yourself to the way that you dedicated yourself to the NFL or I dedicated myself to walking across Antarctica, you can't think of anything. Take the 12 hour walk still and have the question be, have the exploration, the curiosity be, my Mount Everest is to figure out what my Mount Everest is. Just a curiosity, go for the walk and let your brain free associate. I promise you, you're gonna come back after 12 hours and go, oh, I've actually always wanted this. And it doesn't have like, we're talking about achievement. Oh, this world record, this, you know, NFL game, you know, whatever. It can be less ephemeral. It can be less specific than that. It can be like, I want to have an amazing relationship with, you know, my wife or my family. You know, I want to start this business. You know, I want to, you know, feel calm and peace. I want to help other people. I mean, it can be anything. There's, there's no answer. My canvas that I paint on happens to be the ends of the earth and mountaintops, but you can paint your masterpiece on any canvas you want. But once you fix that in your mind, you can set that. We can all start to figure out how to reverse engineer those limiting beliefs, shift that to possible mindset. And before you know it, you're actually going to be stepping into that best life. Like I find it hard to believe that a man would be 75 or 80 years old, but maybe that's like a different mindset where, uh, you know, I always think about like, um, you know, don't die without scars. I mean, you know, like, uh, you gotta be able to, uh, like 
I'm always amazed, especially with some like old dudes where I'll meet like older guys that have like the most epic stories, fought in wars, won law, you know, have just have these, you know, epic stories to tell. And I, I don't know if I've ever met anybody that didn't have any cool stories to tell. So it's interesting to hear like a 75 or 80 year old dudes. Like I was just so focused on money. I never really lived my life. And then the, the, the pain of regret of getting to the end of this thing and realizing all, uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day on your dying deathbed, it's not the, the money that you made. I mean, I know it was when my dad passed away, it wasn't like, Oh, I wish I had another Rolex or, you know, let me tell you about the three Porsches I drove. I mean, it was about, you know, not only like the adventures he had had, uh, you know, the family and the people that were around him. I mean, those memories that you have in your last moment are what's are really what's valuable. I mean, you know, the Egyptians tried to take it with them. I mean, every culture has tried to take it with them and you can't do it. So all, all you totally. have is the experiences and the, totally. you know, the, the way you've influenced people and the way, you know, the way that you've helped. And more importantly, like the people that, you know, show up to your funeral to pay, probably pay respect is probably a great indicator of what you've done. A hundred percent, you know, and I think that, you know, again, this, the, the, the story I tell the opening of this book is, you know, it happened and it's a, it's a short dialogue that I had with this guy. And right. So we're reading a little bit into it. And he wasn't saying to me, Hey, I've, I've done nothing with life. In fact, he was saying, I have more money than most people can ever dream of. He said that to me, I'll never forget that. But the juice. It didn't, it wasn't like, I couldn't tell you a cool story. You know, he could probably tell, Oh yeah, I was on that yacht this time. And when this and this happened and whatever, but what he was saying to me, and again, for somebody that might be a wife, life, well live. Then that's the point here, right? It's not to say, Oh, you know, being massively successful in business is, is bad. Like that might be the life we live, but he was sitting in integrity with himself in this vulnerable moment going, this wasn't the life that I really at my root core wanted or desired to live. I didn't, I summited a bunch of mountains, a shitload of them, billions of them by, you know, if I could measure his bank account, probably, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of them. Right. But it wasn't the mountain that I wanted to climb. It wasn't the mountain that at my soul core. So to your point, the end of the day, you know, as much as the Egyptians try to take it with them, you know, put, build these temples, fill it with, you know, palaces of gold and whatever, you know, I love talking to people of, of, of a generation or a couple generations older, that you're like, it comes back to the same thing. The richest, the most successful, the least successful, the people have down on their luck, whatever it is, you, it really comes down to a lot of the same stuff, like you said, which is experiences, you know, community, you know, it, it, it's somewhat simple, but it's also to say it's also infinite in terms of it, it's a snowflake, meaning we are all different people with different driving forces and things like that. So your integrity with your own self is the only thing that's important. And the thing that's hard not to do, of course, <clears throat> I think this older gentleman is a reflection of this, is to get up and get caught up in what other people think you should be doing living somebody else's dream, climbing somebody else's Everest. Um, and there's, you know, there's a chapter in my book uh, that breaks down the limiting belief of I'm afraid of what other people will say. And I open that story with this moment where I have this opportunity to race triathlon professionally. It's a, you know, it's a sponsorship that allowed me to go some plane tickets around the world and sleep on some floors and stuff like this. But I've just, you know, graduated from Yale with an economics degree. I grew up poor. Like I finally got like a real job that like pays me good money on wall street, you know, whatever. And I call my grandma up and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. And I'm going to go race triathlon professionally. And I love my grandmother. She passed away about five, six years ago, but she was a huge influence in my life as a kid, all the way through my twenties and early thirties. And she says to me, what? 
What are you talking about? Like, you're an idiot. Last time you would travel the road, you burned yourself to a crisp. You finally have a real job and a bright future in this. And you're going to like trash it in on some sport that you like never tried before, but you happen to win a race. I mean, come on. I mean, come on, Colin, like be realistic. And I love my grandma. I love how direct she is or whatever. And it was hard for me to fight back against that. But when I sat with myself in that moment, I ultimately did quit that job. I left a lot of money behind. It was a decade plus of trying to fight it out. Now I've you know managed to create a lucrative life and career for myself, but not as linear as a pathway of sitting behind this desk and you know counting numbers on Wall Street for you know the last the decade before that. You know it was a more circuitous route. But my heart was telling me, that's my Everest. That's what I want to do. I'm curious about human potential. I'm curious about pushing my body. I'm curious about training 25 plus hours a week with the best athletes in the world and race. Like, that's what I'm curious about. It's not going to pay you anything. doesn't matter. That's what I care about. And having that, it's hard, man. Like, look, I'm not saying it's easy. It was hard for me then. It continues to be hard. But my grandmother's not a bad actor here. Now, I say this in the book. I say, if some knucklehead on Instagram is like shit talking to you in the comments, like that's easy. You're just like, whatever, that's a fucking random stranger. Like, like you can just like push, like sometimes it's hard to push that away, but like, that's a pretty simple one. We all know it at court. It's like, don't listen to that random dude who's telling you the earth is flat in Instagram comments. Fine. Right. That's me. But when it's somebody Sorry. who loves you, like, yeah. <laughs> but when somebody who loves flat you, like 69 my- fucking you. Yeah. <laughs> what is your grandmother who's saying this because she's trying to give you sound advice based on her life experience? Like that's not a bad actor. That's not criticism. That's coming from a, you know, disparaging place. That's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, but don't older people give you that perspective. Cause I, I've gotten this too from like, uh, you know, I think as you get older, there becomes like an element of safety that becomes important. And I think like sometimes when you talk to people, especially that are older, and I've gotten this from my own parents and other people, there's this idea of like safety in this. And it's like, you know, fuck safe. You know, like, uh, you know, the ship at Harbor is safe, but then what were ships made for, you know, which is one of my favorite quotes. And, um, you know, as we've been talking about this mindset stuff, uh, I feel like uh, anxious because I want to hear some really epic, like, I've never climbed any of these mountains, yeah, um, let's you know, talk and, about and, and like when you keep it. talking about climbing your Everest, I keep thinking is Everest the gnarliest one. Uh, it like, you know, like, uh, of these peaks, I mean the crossing this, like, and I, I know it's impossible to kind of rate them, but is there ever like a thought where you're like, well, I climbed Everest. I should be able to get across Antarctica. I mean, or was there any, uh, is Everest like the pinnacle? I mean, it's obviously the tallest mountain, but is it the most difficult? Is it the most demanding? And the one where you were like, holy shit, I'm going to fucking die today. No, I mean, the short answer to your question is no, it's not the gnarliest thing that I've done. Um, it's crazy enough, not by a long stretch. You know, I've been fortunate to summit Everest twice. Both of those expeditions were challenging and hard earned. Um, the, the the latter of which I was able to do with my wife, which was a beautiful experience to share side by side with her as someone who doesn't fashion herself a, a lifelong adventure enthusiast or climber. So to get, you know, the training and the prep and the build up to that, the, the book breaks down that story, which is pretty interesting and unique. I think from a lens of setting a big goal that you're not necessarily quote unquote in the moment you set the goal for prepared for, but still achieving it through, you know, a process of fighting and battling your own inner, inner demons. Um, but, you know, if I had to, you know, it's so hard to rate, you know, rate all these things, certainly, <clears throat> 
being out in Antarctica, something no one's ever done in history, meaning there's no blueprint for doing it. There's no like, oh, hey, well, this guy did it this way, so it might probably work, um, was definitely out there on my outer limits at that time. And being alone, being alone for 54 days in an environment that's trying to kill you every single day um, is obviously intense because you can't take a day off. I mean, obviously, literally couldn't take a day off in terms I'd run out of food, but emotionally, you can't take a minute off, a second off. Uh, the, the prologue of my book, The Impossible First, a memoir I wrote a couple of years ago, actually starts with one of the moments where I almost died out there, which is I set up my tent the exact same way every single day, every single day, <clears throat> you know, clip this, clip into this, pound this in the ground, whatever. And I, I couldn't have any extra tent with me, any extra shelter because every pound mattered. I needed as much food as I possibly could. So I definitely didn't have an extra tent with me. Wind's blowing crazy, but I always secure my tent down. But if my tent were to blow away, boom, I'm alone in Antarctica, middle of nowhere, no shelter, no hope for immediate rescue, like bad, bad situation could be very likely fatal. And I just messed up, man. Like I just didn't clip the clip, the rope on my thing to my sled to secure it. I put it down. I walk away from my tent and I look back and my tent lifts off the ground and it's blowing away. And I, you know, again, prologue of this book is me jumping and literally with my fingertips grabbing my tent and almost like Dorothy and the wizard of Oz, just watching like the house, just like spin off into the tornado. Like it was inches from being gone. And I've replayed that moment a million times in my head. I've written about it, et cetera. Um, and that was right on its limit. And that's just, I'm out there for 54 days. And it's like, man, like one mistake, one mistake out here is fatal. I'm making, I'm making a thousand decisions every, every single day, zip this, clip this, step here, don't step here, whatever. And one mistake is that. So the, the stakes are real. But even that, to answer your question, <clears throat> is not the gnarliest thing that I've experienced. Um, in 2001, I attempted to be uh, the first person or part of an expedition to be the first people to climb K2 in winter. So for those that are unaware, maybe you guys know or don't know, but um, context, K2 is the second tallest mountain in the world. So it's about, what is it? It's uh, 500 or so feet shorter than Everest. It's in Pakistan um, on the Chinese border in the northern part of Pakistan. And uh, it's the second tallest mountain in the world, but it's widely considered the deadliest mountain in the world. Um, in summer conditions, about 350, 380 people or so have ever summited the mountain and, you know, 80 or 90 people have died attempting, which means for every, you know, <clears throat> for every four people who summit, one person's dies, 25% uh, fatality ratio on that mountain. And I got the bright idea um, to attempt to climb it, not in summer when the odds are 25% you're going to die, but in, in winter, something that ha- at the moment at that time had never been accomplished. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, you know, Nat Geo and New York Times and whatever had kind of called this the last great prize in mountaineering. So the 14 <clears throat> tallest mountains in the world had all been climbed in summer and winter that all been solo without this, but K2 was the last remaining one of these sort of big behemoth, iconic, super high altitude mountains that had never been climbed in the winter season. And of course, probably goes without saying, but winter is considerably more difficult and it's considerably more challenging than uh, the summer based on the fact that it's, you know, crazy cold and the winds are worse and the weather's worse and it's darker and the days are, I mean, all the things why walking outside of your house is harder in the winter than it is in the summer. Generally, you guys are in Texas, maybe it's flipped there, but, uh, um, but you, you get what I'm saying. So anyways, um, you know, in 2021, I, I attempted this climb and we're over there, um, for about 
Uh, me and my climbing partner, a guy named Dr. John Kodrowski, who's an amazing climber, a dear friend of mine, climbed a bunch of stuff together over the years. And we decided to do this. And at the same time, uh, several other teams of climbers from around the world um, kind of converge on this peak. One, because it's this iconic unclimbed objective, but also COVID had shut down the climbing season everywhere else in the world for the preceding eight or nine months. So all these professional climbers have been like, trapped in their house, just like I have been. And all of a sudden Pakistan opens up permits for the winter and everyone's like chomping at the bit to do something. And the best climbers in the world, I mean, we all kind of know about this project out there, but it was the first time that all of a sudden, you know, two dozen people from around the world, a collection of the best climbers from all around the world go over there all at the same time with the same objective. And, uh, you know, we, we can get into some of the more details if you want, but the, uh, the, what ends up happening um, is we effectively collude. Um, we collude in the sense that instead of kind of competitively working against each other, we just say to say like, well, let's figure out how to put ropes together. Like we're not climbing together, but there's we're, we're kind of sharing base camp. We're sharing tips. We're looking at the weather together. Um, we're not making their final decisions together, but we're talking, you know, we're talking, we're communicating rather than being like siloed and all these two person teams, like being like, yeah, F you, I'm going to get it first, whatever. What ends up happening um, on January 16th of 2021, um, a collection of 10 Nepalese uh, kind of forged together from three different Nepalese teams, and they ultimately reached the summit, um, which was amazing. Um, you know, they, they claimed the last great prize in, in mountaineering, um, and I wasn't acclimatized yet. I was on the lower mountain, but I wasn't, you know, in a position to go for the summit. And to be honest, you know, was there a small amount of me that was like, oh God, I was hoping to be, you know, get this world for sure. But mostly it was just a massive celebration. The, the Nepalese um, have well for a long time been obvious, quite obviously the best climbers, the strongest climbers, they're genetically predisposed for it. They're just badass dudes. And they haven't really gotten their shine because Western climbers have hired them to work for them. And the economics haven't really worked out for a lot of Nepalese to push on their own projects. Um, and, and NIMS, as well as some other guys, Ming Maji, um, was able to get a collection of guys and have their own expeditions and push it. And honestly, man, like mad respect, like just big respect for these guys. I felt, I feel it now. I felt it at the time, even though it's on the mountain, was it, it was, there was no like, oh man, they got it. It was like, man, if anyone deserves to get it, it was these guys. But then let me paint a picture for you. I'm up at camp two. So I'm at about 22,000 feet, really technical climbing between there and the bottom. And my partner and I, John, and I, because what you do is you climb up the mountain and you sleep a couple nights and you climb down and you climb up the mountain a little bit higher. Your body, you use the altitude a little bit higher than you climb back down. Then you wait for a weather window and you're carrying gear up, you're caching stuff, you know, so that when you do go for your summit push, everything's in place, ropes, tents, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we're climbing down and several other climbers, again, in a similar cycle as us are climbing down. We know the Nepalese are going for the summit. Again, our bodies aren't acclimatized that they were there a little bit before us. We're not ready to go for the summit. And we're thinking on the radio chatter, oh, did they summit? Did they not summit? And John and I, we see a bunch of climbers above us, the friends of ours, Chilean guy, Spanish guy, uh, an Italian woman. Um, we can see them above us. We're kind of shouting to them, whatever, friendly. We finally get off the ropes and there's about a two mile walk back to base camp across this big glacier in Pakistan. And, uh, John and I just decide like, we're going to turn off our radios and turn off our radios. Just, just, you know, just to enjoy the silence, the stillness, the majesty of these mountains. So we walk back to base camp, the two of us just enjoying ourselves and walk back into base camp. 
And as we get into base camp, we hear banging of pots and pans. The Nepalese cooks and the the wait the the their support staff they're all outside. We just heard on the radio the guys are on the summit. Like they did it. They freaking did it. They did it. It's like you know that's we're getting. We we knew they were going for it, but we didn't know if they were gonna get it right. And in that moment, right as we walk into base camp, we hear that we're like, oh my god, amazing, amazing. You know, congratulations, pots and pans. And then one minute later, the Pakistani army military captain who was there is called a liaison officer. Is kind of has to oversee the the base camp to make sure people aren't like polluting anything or whatever he's kind of overseeing it's in a military zone and he walks out and he says to us sergi fell he's dead i'm like what two emotions these guys did it first in the world do it oh my god the nepalese it was proud proudest moment in nepalese mountaineering history incredible sergi's dead sergi can't be dead john and i look at each other we just saw sergi we saw we saw him just above us on the ropes like Five, you know, he was just above us in the ropes. We just saw him. Like, what are you talking about? And it turned out Sergi Mingote, one of the best Spanish climbers in the world, incredible climber, amazing guy, family guy, got three kids at home. Right after John and I got off the ropes, right before we turned our radio, right after we turned our radios off, he made a mistake. He slipped, he fell. And literally where we were standing five minutes before the same ropes that we were repelling five minutes before he slipped and fell and fell you know, a thousand plus feet to his death. These two things happen in the same moment, exact same moment. <clears throat> the six, you know, the, the, the brutality and the elation of high altitude mountaineering on full display. There was a sinking feeling. Um, and certainly something that we all really had to deal with ultimately, you know, helped carry his Sergi's body onto a helicopter to get evacuated and was like, well, is this expedition over? And we decided to stay. We decided to stay. Um, you know, we, we sat with it. We saw the risk up firsthand. You know, Sergi's tent and base camp was literally right next to mine. So you know, helped pack that up. And all of a sudden his tent was gone. You know, someone, our friends was, was passed away but we still felt like we want to be here. We want to climb. And so did his climbing partner, a Chilean guy named JP. And look, man, I, I could tell a, a whole other, you know, m- many more tales of this story. Um, but the net net of it is when we went for the summit a couple of weeks later, after waiting out another long storm, John, my climbing partner got a bad intuition and he actually turned back. He turned back. Um, and we had talked about it back down at, at base at uh, sea level before we even went to Pakistan. We both said, we know how dangerous this is. And if any, either of us get any feeling for whatever reason that either of us need to turn around, no shame in that. This is the, we're, we're out. Like you asked me if I'm doing something risky, this is as risky as I could possibly think. Like we, we, you know, we just watched someone die and he just looks at me as we're leaving base camp, not long after leaving base camp or not even to camp one yet. And he says, I got a bad feeling, man. If I go any higher, I think I'm going to die. And I tell a little bit of the story in the book and there's actually at the end of each chapter of this book, there's these QR codes that, that bring you to these short video clips from my expeditions. And this, this is at this moment's capture just because I had my GoPro out when he was telling me, he was like, I'm turning around, but Colin, you should go for it. And, you know, look, I'm not too proud. Like I've you know, done some tough stuff. I'm not such a tough guy. Like I'm crying, man. I'm crying. I'm super sad. Like, I'm like, man, I'm what? Like you're turning around, but I, but I respect the hell out of him. I'm like, you're making the right call for you. Like, there's no judgment. There's no like, Hey man, tough it out. Like whatever. It's like, yo, if you're not feeling right, man, like you're not a hundred, not even you're only 99%. If you're not a hundred percent on this, like they're turnaround, 
He's like, something's off for me, man. I got, I got to turn around. So we have a tearful goodbye, but he says, keep climbing, keep climbing. So I ended up climbing, <clears throat> meeting up with a couple of strippers. So I'm climbing with their uh, higher on the mountain. And then I climb by myself and I climb all the way up to, to camp three. And I get up to camp three, um, which is at 24,000 feet. Um, you know, I'm ultimately the first person to climb up there. So I'm not 24,000 feet on K2 in winter, completely by myself whole bunch of things ensue. I won't get into all the details of that, but some other climbers can continue up there. There's kind of a, a mess of logistics. A couple people forget their tents. And again, that's that more details on that in this book, but not for this podcast, I'm going on long, too long of a story here, but in the end, <clears throat> I end up in a tent, my tent and a couple climbers don't have their tent. So I let them inside of my tent and there's seven people inside of my three person tent, 24,000 feet on K2 in winter. And that's a one shot to go for the summit. And the other guys, guys, I respect the hell out of like, truly, truly, like, you know, I, I rate my skills high in the mountains, but these are guys like the, the Michael Jordan of Pakistan, best climber in Pakistan, best climber in Chile, like just dudes who I'm just like, man, like these guys are like ride or die. They're, they're climbing resumes are just legit of all legit. And they're saying, Colin, like you climbed up here first. You were the f- fastest person to get up here. Like you're climbing amazing. Like we're going for the summit. We're leave- we leave in an hour. Let's all like work together. Like I said, there was a camaraderie at this point established. We're friends. And something came over me, man. I closed my eyes for a second. My body was feeling good. Check. Some logistics were a little bit off. So that wasn't great, but still was like, okay, like I can do this. I know I can do this. I literally said, I know I can summit this mountain, took a deep breath and closed my eyes. I'm in this scrum. There's seven people smashing my three person tents, minus 50, minus 60 outside. And something inside of me, this intuitive voice just says, turn around, turn around. And I sat with that for a second. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm Colin O'Brady. I'm the guy who does hard stuff. I'm the guy who parts Antarctica by himself, does impossible things. There's something in my intuition that says, turn around, turn around. And so eventually, <clears throat> hard decision, but I look over at the other guys, I yell out to a couple of their tents that are nearby of some of the other guys that are climbing. And I say, hey guys, I know this might sound weird to you, but my intuition is telling me to turn around. What are you talking about your intuition? No, something's off for me. All right, man, if that's what you feel. We're gonna go, we're, we're going, we're leaving right now. Are you sure you don't wanna come with us? I'm sure. I turn around, I, I stay there until the sun comes up that next morning and then I climb down by myself and three guys who left that night, three of the best climbers in the world, they climbed for the summit and they never came back. They never came back. JP Moore, John Snorri and Ali Separa. And then I last on the very, very last piece of that story is also at camp through that morning when I turned around a Bulgarian climber, a buddy of mine named Atanas, had just, he'd gone up a little bit higher, but he also decided to turn around so we're sitting in camp three that morning. We're taking pictures. We're taking videos. We're like, man, what a, what a weird climb, but are we not going to make it? But we're at camp three on K2 in winter. And it was a sunny day because it was our summit day. It was like good weather for once. And so we take some pictures. We're enjoying the moment. And as I'm climbing down the ropes, I hear some chatter on the radio. And I look down, you can see like thousands of feet down because it's clear. And I see this speck on the ground and I realize somebody's fallen. And it turns out that not long after I was with Atanas, about 30 minutes after I was with him, he had slipped and fallen, fell all the way to the bottom of the route. 
So on that day, we lost Sergi on January 16th. And on the, you know, between February 4th and February 5th, we lost four more of the best climbers in the world. Ultimately, five people died on that expedition in K2. Um, so that's a really, really, really long-winded answer to what's the riskiest thing you've ever done and what, how do you measure that risk and happy to answer any follow-ups. Forgive me for going on so long. But for me, it's a deep sadness. It's a deep trauma. Done a lot of work over the last 18 months to really kind of, you know, be able to even, you know, talk about this in this way. And what I've learned is there's a difference between trauma and grief. Trauma is, you know, something I highly respect. PTSD, wake you up in the middle of the night, afraid. I don't have that. I just no, not for any good reason. I don't, you know, know anyone who has that, man, my heart goes out to you, but I don't have that with this. But I have a lot of grief, man. I cry. I'm sad lost friends out there, lost good people, ultimately 15 kids um, who fathers are, you know, no longer alive between the five guys. I left 15 kids behind. It's tough, man. It's super tough. But what I write about in the book and the reason I should share this story is not to share war stories or this, but the lesson that I got from this. And again, it's not to say they, they were wrong. I was right. This and that, but it is, we have an inner voice. We do. We have an intuition, call it intuition, call it gut instinct, call it whatever you want, but we have this voice. And when I frame the chapter in the book, it's the limiting belief is I don't know what to do. And my answer to that is you do know what to do. You do have the answer. And so it might not be life and death stakes. You might not be on the edge of K2. You might be sitting at home going, oh, hey, I just got this job interview or this job offer on the other side of the country, but I'd have to move my kids and they're in, they're in sports and they got good community. There's no, I don't know the right answer for you, but you know the answer to that. You don't have to weigh the pros and cons. You actually know the answer. Or you're dating somebody, you're thinking, should I get married? Is this the right person for me? I don't know, weigh the pros and cons, this, try to logic it out, all this sort of stuff. It's like, Go walk by yourself in silence for 12 hours, man. Like, you know the answer. You actually know the answer. And when that answer comes up and that intuitive voice tells you, marry the girl, don't marry the girl, take the job, don't take the job. Like, trust that. You don't have to logic it out a million times. And me trusting that instinct, because I'm sure there's many other times when I did it throughout my life, but over the course of the work that I've done and the climbs that I've been on and diving into my own psyche and whatever, that voice and without, without saying, but I'm climbing so well, but I'm the guy who does hard stuff. Like I, I could climb this mountain right now. Yes, I could have climbed that mountain right now. And who knows what would have happened. But my voice, my intuitive voice in that moment said, for no other reason, you got to turn around, man. Something's off. The same echo that John had felt a couple, couple days earlier. And it saved my life. And like I said, it might not be life or death stakes, but I'll tell you what. Marrying the wrong person does have life or death consequences in the sense of your happiness and your utility over the course of the totality of your life. There are decisions that we make that either light us up and have a ripple effect of positivity throughout the totality of our life and not. And more often than not, in those really, really challenging, seemingly tough moments, you already have the answer. You just need to figure out how to tune into that voice. And I do believe this is not me trying to pitch a book or whatever, but I do fundamentally believe quieting the noise, taking a day, taking a minute away from it all, taking 12 hours, taking a day can shed light. And that voice that's hard to hear over the noise of social media and our daily day, this, that, and the other thing, you give yourself a day, like, you know, the answer, you know, the answer, dude, it's us. No, I, I like one. Um, thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. uh, I could tell like the, the, the tremble in the voice that like, 
still very fresh. So, I mean, dude, that's an amazing experience to share. And uh, selfishly, it's exactly what I was hoping to hear. Um, I'm always amazed by like the uh, like the strength of the human spirit. And more importantly, when people put themselves in these situations and somehow figure out a way to persevere. And I'm very sorry for your loss of your friends, man. That's uh, I've, uh, I've lost a lot of friends, uh, suicide and weird things as an NFL player. And so um, you carry all those individuals with you. Um, the wow. Uh, I mean, we still got a bunch of time on this podcast, but I mean, if in, in, in any other situation, I'd be like, we're good. But, uh, uh, dude, uh, well, what do you got? What it is the, the powerful approach now that you take to break down each one of these limiting beliefs and then provide where your strong mental aptitude and, and mindset has overcome those. So I coach high school. And one of the biggest things that I aim to do is teach these kids how to write goals. So not only realistic, but also in the realization it's it's not necessarily writing the goals as in I'm going to score four goals a game. Okay, well, how about what leads to goals? Shots, assists, pass, or running the the uh, the appropriate offense. So teaching them to write and come up with more processes that lead to the outcome of scoring a goal. Um, so this in that step is creating this process almost at the the base camp of what is the first thing that gets in the way you your mindset your limiting beliefs as written here your fears of failure of even taking the shot you want to score the goal but you're scared to even shoot so that's that's the awesome thing that we have in here my question for you now is like what what led to the order of these limiting beliefs is it a hierarchy does it all lead from the easiest for you to tackle now to the most difficult one to summit i'm very punny today, John. So that's what I'm handing off to you, Colin. What's the order of operations that you came up with these beliefs for the book? Yeah, no, no, I think it, it's good. I, I, I love what you said about the way that you're, you're coaching your, your, your team, your team, high school team. I'm um, not just to set goals, but how to set goals. Right. I, I love that. I love that. And I love that. What I'm sure you call it this too, but the way I call that is, is incremental goals, right? It's like you got the goal, you got your big Everest. Cause I also say, hey, what's your Everest? We already talked about this. You know, set that big goal. But the first thing I do with people once they give me that answer is I'm like, cool. So, like, you want to climb that Everest? What can you do tomorrow? Literally tomorrow. What do you mean? Tomorrow? And I, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not in Nepal right now at the base of this. <laughs> I'm like, great. Right, right. But like, can you read one article online? You know, for whatever sport you're, co- you know, can you dribble the ball, you know, five more minutes tomorrow, or the next day, can you crack the textbook on this? If you're trying to study for, you know, what's one thing, right? What's that incremental process to get there? And so anyways, man, I just want a hat tip to you. Cause I love that. And I, and I love nothing more than lighting people up about the big goal and then being like, but how we're going to get there is we're going to talk about all these incremental steps and this consistency and chipping away at this day by day. And that's how we're actually going to achieve, you know, the big goal. I mean, um, that was like Andy Stump's talk, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of the dominoes. Um, Andy Stump, he's also been on Rogan a bunch, a friend of ours, a Navy SEAL talking about how he passed buds. And he just wanted to wake up every morning and see the sunrise. Mm-hmm. And he talked about it being like just stacking little dominoes to try to get a big you know, sit in motion. One domino falls, uh, you know, it, it doesn't produce enough energy. You put a thousand dominoes, it'll knock down a building. And like that idea of accumulating small goals. And I think, I mean, like, I always wonder too, when you plan, like, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, uh, you know, and people throw that out there. I think for me personally, I'd be like, I just want to get to base camp. 
Like, how mm-hmm. do I get to the, like, where's the parking lot at to get to base camp? Cause that's what I just want to get, like, I want to get off the plane and get to the parking lot. Like, uh, the other one that keeps going through my mind is, uh, like, what food do you take for 56 days? Or was that how long it took you to hold, uh, hold on? Yeah, 50, I got a 50, 50, question 50. here. Yeah, yeah I, I, we'll get to them all. We'll get to them all. Uh, yeah, um, like, I, like never... I can't get this food thing out of my mind. I'm thinking, fi- <laughs> yeah, what was yeah, it, we'll 56 days? 7,000 calories? Let's I'm doing put that question on ice. Yeah. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm doing the math in my head and I'm like, all right, 7,000 calories, 56 days. That's a lot of olive oil and coconut oil because you ate probably primarily fat because it's the most calorically dense stuff you could take. Totally, totally. So I just scattershot respond to a few things. One, I haven't heard that it's called with Domino's, uh, but I freaking love that. That's awesome. Um, I have, I don't have it in my pocket right now, but um, I have for many years and still often um, carry this small rock around in my pocket. And it's a, it's a rock that I took from the summit of Mount Everest on 2016 from the very summit, a tiny little rock, little pebble. Um, and I carry it, I carry it as a daily reminder that Mount Everest even the tallest mountain in the world is really just a bunch of tiny little rocks stacked on top of each other. Cause you get to the top and there's still just one little pebble that makes it, you know, one centimeter higher. And so I love the dominoes analogy. I'll use that as a mental framework for sure. But to me, it's always been just the stacking little rocks. Uh, I love that. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, in terms of the, the, the ordering of the limiting beliefs throughout the book, so the 12-hour walk, as you said, there's a couple introductory chapters that really talk about the walk itself and the, this, the regrets, you know, um, what's your Everest, et cetera, and all through these stories, um, some of which we've touched on here. But then each chapter after that, there's 10 chapters that are like, this is a limiting belief. I'm going to throw you into a story. Like I said, it, at least I think it is. I hope you guys found it to be page turning and, and, and engaging and exciting um, in terms of the riches of the stories. But then at the end of that, it's like, great. I, I'm not just telling you stories to tell you stories. I'm telling you stories because like, here's how you can apply this in your life. And just kind of a, I think about it as in like, just the way I am, my personality. Um, you know, I can get in the esoteric cerebral if, if I want to, you know, nerd out. But in general, I, my way I communicate is through like, yeah, we're sitting down having a beard, you know, broing down, having a chat. Like, let's just talk like that. So it's, it's delivered in that way like we're just shooting the shit you know hanging um but, and i'm just talking this from is, my point of view this is the greatest form of teaching is storytelling i mean it's a reason that the Absolutely. bible's written the way it is i mean it's a reason that uh you know people Amen. like for all the information that people presented it's the stories and the analogies that people remember and the, the way you made them feel i mean dude as i'm sitting here listening to the the story about you uh k2 i don't know if you noticed i kicked my mic and i just leaned forward and i was like dude this is uh like the like whenever you hope to be, at least for me personally, to be um, uh, inspired by things, it's always through some like amazing story. You know, like uh, yeah. you can quote all the Seneca you want and try to pretend that you're stoic and, you know, this and this. And I can, you know, existentialism and all this other stuff I've read and, and was into. But at the end of the day, it's uh, the, the story that an individual has in that moment where they make a decision that either results in, you know, like you saw like – for me, as I as I put myself, the ability to be able to see it and know that you can summit it and somehow like write your name on some wall of only a few hundred people have ever done it on this planet, and then the you know and then the feeling of being like I'm going to trust my gut. How many times have people been like fuck that? I'm going to go for that brass ring. I'm going to go and you know if I die, I die. Whereas other people are like you know what? Um, I still have way more accomplishments to do. I got a wife at home. I got a family. Like there's so many more things. If I die at this moment, this extinguishes my story. So uh, um, that was amazing. I mean, because like I don't know if I would have had the ability to do it to have it that close. And um, 
you know, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. And I look mean, and, and in other times, you know, it, it's interesting because the moral of that story isn't push up till your edge. And when it gets hard, turn around. Right. No, like, no, that's I, not I, I never story. said no, that. No, 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 I know. I know. I know you're not. I know you're not. No, I know you're not taking it that way. That's not what I'm saying. Like I'm saying like and, and that's that's the that's the beauty of the intuitive voice. Right. Which is my intuition. In all sorts of other moments has been like, yo, man, like this is hard. Keep fucking going. Like, keep going, man. Like you got like. You, th- you think you're tired because you've had 50 days of 3000 calorie deficit and your ribs are sticking out. My wristwatch in Antarctica starts sliding down to my elbow. And I was like, do I keep loosening my wristwatch? I didn't realize you can actually lose enough like circumference in your wrist from starving yourself. They wristwatch is right around your It was on that level, right? My intuition in that moment was like, go push. Like I got, to, I got to the end of that Antarctica crossing and I'm a, uh, 53 days in, I've been battling this brutal storm for the last eight to 10 days. It's Christmas morning. And all of a sudden the clouds clear for the first time in like like over a week. I've got videos of myself during this storm. I'm running low on food, so low on food, actually, that my wife, who's monitoring things back home, I'm talking to her via sat phone, you know, quick check-ins every single day. She goes, I know you've been running on day 40. She goes, I know you've been running 7,000 and you're really hungry out there. But the only way you're going to get through this is you got to go down to 5,500. I just lost it. What are you talking about? She's like, I've run the math. I've run it five different ways. Like you got to go down to 5,500. And I was like, I can't even comprehend how you want me to do this. Cause I had like 7,000 calorie, like ration packs for the day. So I wouldn't like eat tomorrow's food today, basically. And that was hard in itself. The willpower that when you're that hungry and she's like, I've actually, I know you're so mentally fatigued right now that I've actually figured out, like, here's what you need to do. She goes, go get all, she knows exactly what's in my sled. She's monitoring, right? She goes, go get these bags. Okay. Take three scoops out of bag one and put it into this. Take two scoops from here. I mean, she literally, like, I couldn't, there's no way yeah, I could do this. Do I'm looking, math. literally couldn't do the math. And I'm looking, I'm like, and also the visceral feeling of like, wait, like I almost fell over and collapsed from hunger yesterday at 7,000 tomorrow and the next 20 days or so I got to do this. But the intuitive voice in that moment didn't say, well, pack it in. Like you did pretty good. You made it for it. My intuitive voice in that moment was like, get through this. You, you got to figure it out, figure it out. Like keep at it. Like not saying it wasn't, I mean, I got videos of myself being like, I just want to give up, but, but I'm not going to, but I'm not going to. And that's what's so beautiful about the intu- intuition is like in comparing and contrasting that Antarctica moment to this, like I get to the 53rd day, the weather clears and I start, I start pulling my sled. Finally, the weather's clear. I literally could barely, my sled was a lot lighter at this point. It wasn't 375 pounds anymore. Cause I literally had basically a couple of days of food left with me and barely pick up, you know, my bag that has a couple, you know, my sleeping bag in it and throw it in my sled, start pulling my sled. And all of a sudden I just tap into this deep flow state. It's one of the beauties of being in this much stillness and this much silence. You're tapping into these flow states, but in this was the most powerful ever in my life. I'm just locked in, completely locked in. In this flow state, for whatever reason, my mind just starts doing math. I start going like, okay, how far away am I from the finish? I looked down my GPS, 77 miles, closer than any person's ever been to this crossing. A guy made it almost about a hundred miles from the crossing 71 days in, and then he fell ill and died uh, in 2015. Um, I'm like, wow, no one's ever been this close. Okay, 77 miles. Well, how far am I going on average every day? Uh, 15 or so-ish miles. My best day been like 20, so okay, 77 miles. Baby, best case scenario, I got four days Four days left. I look at my sled, uh, ish, four days-ish left of food on these reduced rations. It's like really tight. 
okay, four days. Okay. Four days of pulling my sled. Well, how many hours is that? 40 ish, 40 some amount of hours. Okay. I started measuring this thing in months and then in weeks and then in days. Now I'm measuring this thing in hours. I'm still locked in this flow state. In Antarctica, it's 24 hours of daylight, right? And I'm there in the Antarctica summer. So it's the one like weird thing about it. Like, you know, despite the whole thing being flat and, you know, the edge of the earth. Well, and, I was going to say know, the, the aliens and all must that have stuff, tapped you know, into you and helped they, you with the flow state. Right. But the, the aliens tapped in and the lights on all of a sudden. It's 24 hours of daylight. No. So I say to myself, I'm like, well, the sun's never going to set here. Every single hour of the day is the exact same. The sun's directly overhead. And so I said, my intuitive voice in that moment says to me, it goes, Colin, Colin. What if you don't stop? What? What if you don't stop? What if you don't set up your tent again? What? No, just don't stop. Just keep going. Just ride this flow state all the way out. And all of a sudden, I listened to the intuitive voice in that moment. I was like, I'm having a conversation with myself, right? But I'm like, you're right. You're right. And I literally say to myself, I am not stopping until I get to the edge of the Antarctic continent. It's 77 miles away. I've never gone more than 20 miles and I'm the most exhausted and the most hungry and the most tired that I've ever been. But my mind all of a sudden forgot all of that weakness. My mind bought into, I can see myself at the finish line. 10 hours goes by, 15 hours goes by. My family's back home. It's Christmas day coincidentally. They're tracking me on this GPS tracker that they can see a signal from you know, every so often. And I stop at the same time every single day, 8 p.m. Antarctica time, 3 p.m. back home in Oregon, 9 p.m. 10 p.m. They're like looking like his dots still moving. Oh, maybe he's getting an extra hour in. Another 10 hours goes by. He's still moving, but they're starting to freak out now because they're like, what is he still moving? What's happening? He's never done this, but I'm just locked in. 25 hours goes by. 30 hours goes by. Ultimately, 32 and a half hours goes by on the very horizon. I see this post. I know there's a post that marks the edge of the continent. I'm like, I'm like, I've researched this, whatever. And I can see it in the distance. I realize I'm about to do it. I sit down on the ground for a second, just look out, take a few deep breaths, still in this flow state. And the resonance wasn't, Colin, you're the shit, man. Yo, you did this shit that no one's ever done. You're such a fucking badass. The voice was saying infinite love, infinite love, an echo of just the resonance of the connection to my family, the connection to my community, the connection to the kids and the people I was trying to inspire, but ultimately just the resonance. I was alone. I was probably quite likely the most isolated human being on the entire planet at that moment, but I felt connected to it all. I felt connected to energy, to source, the universe, whatever you're, I don't know. I'm not, not particularly religious, traditionally religious person, but however you want to call that a greater power, just connected into that. And with that final last breath of energy, I walked to the edge, touched the post, and I became the first person in history to cross Antarctica solo unsupported and human powered. But again, the intuition knew. I knew. I knew the answer in that moment. It was guiding me. It was guiding me to make that decision. So it's not always guiding you to turn back. It's not always guiding you to turn forward. It's not always guiding you to turn right or turn left or do the thing or don't do the thing. But it is guiding you because we know. We know. So, man, I, uh, I didn't order the limiting beliefs in any particular order to answer your first question. I didn't order them in any particular order. Obviously, I ordered them because, you know, I thought about how I want to construct this book. But they're not ranked. They're not this one's better than that one. I did ask a lot of people, including my Instagram audience and other folks, like, what is stopping you from living your best life? Just ask that question over and over again. Put it in my Instagram comments, just ask people. And you think you're going to ask that question over and over again, you're going to get like a thousand different responses. 
But it turns out that I basically just got the 10. I really got the same five or six. And then like, go stretch that to like the same 10 over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I was like, holy shit. So you guys are all just like me and we're all just dealing with like the same, like, you know, handful of limiting beliefs that are some version of, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. What if I fail? I'm not strong enough. What if people criticize me? I hate being uncomfortable. And so it's structured in that way. And the truth of the matter is, is that I think each one of the limiting beliefs in the 12 hour walk, we can all relate to because I think myself included, we've all experienced them at some point in our life. You might be at a phase in your career. I've been fortunate to reach this phase in my career where I don't have enough money is, is not a current limiting belief. I've spent a lot of my life feeling that way. A lot, a lot, a lot, the majority of my life. And I've worked super hard that that's not a current limiting belief based on circumstances I work super hard for. If that's where you're at, like that limiting belief isn't in your current psyche, but I'm guessing it's been in your psyche at some point. And that's true of any of these. Maybe you're not afraid to fail. Maybe you're, you're not afraid to fail anymore. You failed a bunch and you realize that, and I love to say failure plus perseverance equals success. At some point along the line, we learned that lesson. I wouldn't wish the burn accident on my worst enemy, burn yourself to a crisp, be in Thailand, be afraid, pain, the suffering, the, the cause of harm to my family. But in the end, that shit taught me some of life's greatest lessons, as I'm sure the bump, you know, the accident of the injury in your NFL career. You're like, man, like that taught you resilience and grit. And those 10 seasons that you had after that were built upon the intensity and the being able to overcome that obstacle. And so we learn, I didn't fail. I didn't fail. I either succeeded or I learned something. Failure plus perseverance equals success. So again, that, that may or may not be your limiting belief in this moment, but I would find it very hard to believe. I hope there's people out there, but I would find it very hard to believe that someone reads this book and all 10 chapters are like, yeah, man, I don't deal with any of these. No, I've never, I've never had any of these doubts ever before in my mind. Well, then like you're I the said, one. I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I always tell I, people, I'm like, you're, yeah. you're the one who's never failed. Like you're Neo. Like, fuck, yeah. you just you break the matrix. I mean, it's... Uh, Dude, uh, so, I mean, I'm like, hell yeah, man. I want to hang out. Like DM me. Let's hang out. Like, yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to know all, all these people that don't have any self-doubt, but I mean, it's yeah. so, uh, at Berkeley, I was a rhetoric major and there was a lot of like English, like English philosophy. And I read a ton and like, I always go back to, and I can't remember. There's two things like one, um, people make their own prisons. So, I mean, you know, we are, and, uh, it, it came from a story of this guy who was incarcerated and, uh, he like, uh, while he was a, I can't remember exactly who it is, but like he was a political prisoner and he basically like in his mind built this clock. And when he got out, he, he like basically built the clock into the Smithsonian. And so the idea mm. was that like we built our own prisons and even in his mind, he was free regardless of how he was encased. And then the other one I pulled up and, and I, I don't know why this one popped into my mind, but it was a, a Russian philosopher said, all religions will pass, but this will remain sitting in a chair, looking in the distance, staring at the mountains. And like, mm -hmm. I, I think about like all this religion, you know, religion and people, you know, this imagery and what I, I think like how many people have stood at the bottom and looked up at Mount Everest over, you know, the eternity of time, regardless who they were. And you know what? And, you know, nobody will ever climb that. And then people do and reach that. It, it's just, it's, mm -hmm. uh, just the pictures alone. Like as I pulled up some of these pictures of Everest and some like K2, as you're talking about it, like just looking at the pictures gives me a sense of like uh, angst and like fear where you look at it and you're like, holy shit, like people have climbed that and how mm -hmm. many people have died and summited. And, um, dude, it's, it's, it's fucking inspiring. Uh, I thought you were going to say when you were going, you're like, I'm going to go 40 straight hours. There was like the little Pee Wee Herman voice, you know, like, I see, we let him know. You're like, <laughs> I see, we start eating. I mean, so like, what, uh, and I, I go back to this, like, what, 
what is the food? Like, uh, like I mean, what you have food? to take yeah, something yeah. that doesn't spoil, but it's super cold. So it's not like heat's going to go, but something that's not going to freeze like a rock that you're going to have to spend a ton of time. Whiskey. To- <laughs> Mostly whiskey. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm there. Uh, fucking let's go. You know, rocket fuel, it's bitter moonshine. But like explain. The thing me- is that the, yeah, the whiskey the food. would be good, except for the fact that it's it's extraordinarily hard to navigate. And you're staring at a compass the whole time. And so after after a few shots, it's just real hard to walk in a straight line in the middle of Antarctica. So I had to divert from that, you know, ah. plan A. It's a great question. And it's a question I asked myself based on, so no one's done this before. Meaning there's not a blueprint. I can't call up a guy and be like, yo, so like when you walked across Antarctica solo without, you know, any kites or dogs or whatever pulling you, like, how did you do it? What did you eat? I can look at the history of polar exploration going back, you know, to the Ernest Shackleton's and the Amundsen's and the Scots of the early 1900s and, and go all the way into the future and look at what people have done. But I looked at it and I was like, man, people in the, you know, quote unquote modern era, you know, over the last 20 years or so are actually still eating on polar expeditions, pretty much what the guys in the early 1900s ate, which is to your, to your hypothesis or thesis, high fatty foods. Um, but you know, something called pemmican is really common, which is basically like boiled down bacon fats and, and things like that. I was like, okay, right. I don't have like any, like, you know, significant aversion to that, but like, I haven't eaten that way a lot in my life. What I really would, that would be supporting my health the best in the most intense circumstance. So I actually went into a food science lab and I said, test me a hundred different ways. Let's do a bunch of stress tests. Let's this. And the, the, well, the end of this equation is we are going to feed me whatever works the best for my body, my composition, whatever we find out, et cetera. And if you tell me, you know, I've got to eat, you know, corn on the cob, probably not the most weight efficient, but like, you know, we'll figure that out. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. You, know, you got to drink milk the whole time. You got to, you know, it was like, there wasn't like a constraint. It was just like, what's the most efficient burning for my body. There are all these stress tests, blood tests, all these, you know, VO2 max and you know, all the various different things, my body um, and blood and body composition, et cetera. We came up with what we dubbed a one of one custom, the column bar. Um, which was essentially, uh, you, you guessed it earlier, a bunch of coconut oil. It ended up being completely plant-based. Um, it was coconut oil, nut seeds, plant-based protein, um, you know, a combination of some extra, you know, supplementation in terms of, you know, magnesium and things like that. But essentially the vast, you know, I had a little bit of warm soup mix at night and a few things to just kind of keep me warm inside of my tent, but the vast, vast, vast majority of my calories. And I ate it every, people were like, well, you didn't eat something different every day. No, I ate the exact same thing every single day, these chopped up squares. And what's interesting, again, you're, you're, you're obviously very, very intuitive, smart guy, um, which is these bars at um, room temperature would just melt in a pile because they're so high in coconut oil and fats. Like, but we were like, but they're going to be minus 30 the entire time. So they actually can, they're just going to implicitly stay frozen. And so I actually would just put them in my jacket against my warm body heat, warm them up enough that I could bite into them. And that was it. You know, each bar was about the size of maybe the length of an iPhone. Um, but you know, two or times as, as thick or fat as an iPhone, something like that. And each one of them had a hundred or sorry, 
1,110 calories in them. So obviously, as you know, um, you know, oils and fats are the most calorie dense, you know, take basically calories, but you do still need carbs. You do still need protein. The macros were something about uh, 50, 30, 20 in terms of uh, fats, carbs, and, and protein. Um, and that's what I ate the entire time. Um, and it worked. And a funny little side story. Uh, there was, like I mentioned before, we'll get all the details, but the, there was a guy who I was racing out there. Turned, we, we thought, I thought it was me racing history. And it turned out there was another guy British explorer attempting to cross in the same time. We ultimately got dropped off on the same day, basically right next to each other. Boom, gun start, you know, in fact, not a real gun. Him and I just waved at each other. It was like 932 miles, ready to go race history and race this other dude. And he smokes me in the first week, just completely smokes me. Long story short, I catch up to him and, and we know how the story ends. I just share, which is, you know, I finished and he finished a few days later, but, um, in the early days when we were in this encampment in Antarctica, he sees me packing my sled and he's like, well, what do you got over there? And I tell him, oh, I did this, you know, high tech food study and I created these custom things and like whatever. And he looks at me, he's proud British explorer, badass equivalent of a Navy SEAL in the UK, special forces guy, actually someone I have a ton of respect for. We maintain a friendship at this point, but in this moment it was heated because we were like racing each other. Like, you know, it was intense. And he's like, Oh, this is some stupid American thing. Us Brits, we've been doing polar exploration for a hundred years. Brits have a long lineage of proud, you know, ex, you know, extreme accomplishments in the polar extreme. The Americans, not so much. And he's like, oh, it's fussy American here. This I'm eating bacon and I'm eating salami and I'm eating cheese. And like, what are you doing measuring out the actual thing or whatever? You know, I finished a few days before him, although to his credit, he did finish the crossing, which nobody else had ever done. It was a massive accomplishment for him. I waited at the end to congratulate him because after all that camaraderie. You're like, hey, loser, hurry up, like with a finger in the air. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, you're like, Finally, I've been waiting for you for days. I kicked your fucking ass. Get over here, yeah. you fucking limey not bastard. Not so much. Yeah, not so much. It was mostly love, man. And, we, and, we've, and we stayed in touch. Um, and last year, he was going back to Antarctica. He was going back to Antarctica. He was guiding a guy, um, a really interesting guy, actually, a, a, a British military guy who I think he was injured, um, a wounded warrior of some kind. Um, and he was helping him to do a big port. Not a, not a world record, um, but a, uh, a really impressive polar crossing. And he calls me up and he's like, <laughs> kind of hat in hand a little bit. And he's like, yo, man, like, can you tell me a little more about like those bars that you had out there? <laughs> like, really? And he's like, I know I gave you a hard time, man. That seems like that kind of worked pretty well. I'm thinking about doing something else. So um, just like anything, man, you know, 1% gains, little tweaks, little, you know, looking at something the way that something's been done for, you know, man, when I was a swimmer growing up, I look at the way kids are training now and swimming and the times are getting faster. And I would go, man, they're training less than me. No, they're just training smarter. They're training more effectively. Like they, they figured something out about rest and sleep that my coaches in the nineties and the early two thousands, like hadn't figured out yet. And it's just, you know, I don't think I'm some genius or something like that, but I just looked at something like this has been doing the same way a hundred, a hundred years. Like surely there's a slightly better way to optimize this. And the, and the food was, was certainly, and, and hacking that in the way that I did was certainly one of the, my huge keys of success out there. No doubt. Yeah. Like the bacon and what the other guy brought, I mean, that temperature, think about how solid those are even at like, I mean, uh, like the amount of time and effort that it would have taken to actually get those things into a palatable right. place totally would have just destroyed it. So that's why I was thinking, I was like, man, it's got to be. So if you look at like, there's more calories in like a 55 gallon drum. And I only know this because we were kind of like doing a, um, I did a blog post about like surviving the apocalypse and like how you mm -hmm. would effectively eat if you and like a 55 gallon drum of coconut oil 
and then like some local hunting, you pretty much, you know, cause you'll die on a starvation, um, you'll right, die on right, a diet right. of, of rabbits. It's called a starvation diet, right? Like lean meats is fucking death to you. So like, you know, and most wild games pretty lean. So, you know, you have organs and this, and they were like 55 gallon drum of coconut oil and then kill everything you see and eat it. And you're usually pretty good because you need yeah. essential fats. You obviously need protein, you know, carbs, you could wait either way, but man, that's really, that's super heady. And the only thing I think of is everything in every bar that I've ever had, because I was thinking about economy of packing. So they would have to be packaged in such a way within like a spatial relationship to be able to pack efficiently. You just couldn't have random sizes like bacon. It just would fuck everything up. Yeah. So as I was thinking oh, about yeah. it, I, I was like the economy, the spatial relationship of packing that, the food, the calories, the calculation piece, it would have to be bars, geometric shapes, and something that you could easily warm up without too much effort. So that's- totally. And we totally, and I put it into, like you said, it was like, I kind of said the iPhone shape, you now it's kind of a square rectangular shape. But then I went before the Antarctica crossing a couple months before that, I went to Greenland um, and I did a 27 day crossing of Greenland, a train um, just to test some stuff and whatever and food. And what I realized there was to your point, it was like, Oh, these are bars, but it'd be so much easier if they were smaller. And so, um, I cut them up into what were ended up just by the math being about a hundred ish calories, but these square chunks or cubes basically. And so I cut, you know, however many bars into however many cubes, that could be in a you know plastic bag with me with my big mittens. It's minus 30 outside. It would be way easier for me than to like open a thing or whatever. I can just put one cube with like an open palm and throw it in every 30, 45 minutes, 100 cal, 100 cal, 100 cal, 100 cal. What was your cal, first cal. meal after you were done? Like once you oh, got that was my next question. Oh, I, I, your <laughs> fucking brain is exactly where mine is because I'm thinking <laughs> once you eat these bars for 54 days. Yeah. 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 And then all of a sudden you get, and I, I don't know what, what like the first outpost was or like, what was the first real meal where you were like, I mean, I don't know where you, uh, Chile yeah. would, would be what to go to Chile. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we got finally picked up on that, you know, far edge of the roster, the edge of the Ross ice shelf to have taken back to the other side of Antarctica near more near where we started, you know, 900 miles away. Um, and we got back to this little encampment. It's called union glacier. And, this wasn't my actual dream meal. I'll tell you what my dream meal was when I got back to Chile. But the first thing happened is I go back and there's, there's a buffet. Like, I mean, it's like an encampment. It's not like super nice. It's like hoop barn tents and whatever, but it's like a little bit heated and there's a proper kitchen there. There's something basic considering where you are. It's like amazing. But if I put you there right now, you'd be like, I'm in like the worst place ever. Um, you're like, Oh my God, compared to where I just was incredible, like a warm ish room and a buffet. Um, and I walk up to this buffet and look, I've like lost so much weight. I'm skinny. Like my ribs are hanging out, like whatever. And I just fill up two massive plates of everything, just, you know, pasta and rice and like whatever else, chow mein, whatever else they got on there. And I go down, I can't barely remember what it was. And I just like stuff myself two full plates of food. And immediately like my stomach hurts so bad because my stomach is such a calorie that my stomach had like, you know, gotten so small, but my mind is like food. And so I walk back up to the counter, fill two more heaping plates of food. And I just can't help myself when I'm eating them. Every bite is literally like hurting and retching in my, in my gut. And I was like, I can't stop myself. And I'm like, I'm like, I should probably stop, but I can't. And I walk back up and I get a full like pumpkin pie and like three other desserts from this buffet. And I just crush that too. And like, I literally can like barely walk now to my tent, but I was like, so like the emotional side of like, I can eat as much as I want. I just couldn't freaking help myself with that moment. But 
So there was that, and I felt terrible. Uh, and I, you know, the worst side of my life. And didn't puke. I didn't throw up. Wow. I didn't throw up. Actually, no, I didn't. Um, coming out the other end, I think my body was just, what is going on here? Um, Clear. But I did again. You said Chile was where we flew back to. It was a place called Punta Arenas, Chile, and that's where my wife Jenna, you know, met me. Um, and it was an incredible reunion. And of course, she's like wherever you want to go, we go to whatever, whatever, what do you ever want to eat? Like, what are you craving? Like, what is and everyone assumed it just be like, kind of what I just did. Oh, huge pizza and this and that. And I looked at her and I was just like, I want an avocado and salad. She's like, what are you talking about? But like nothing in Antarctica is alive. So nothing can live on the interior of Antarctica. There's no tree, there's no soil, there's no bacteria, there's no birds, there's no bugs, like nothing, obviously on the coast, there's teeming sea life, but on the interior of Antarctica, beyond like the distance of like a penguin can walk, basically there's nothing. And so there's something about like just something alive or something that was recently living, like just like green, fresh, like whatever. That was just like, I just wanted that crispy like taste. And so obviously I ate some more calories than that, but what I was really, truly craving was, uh, some, some fresh, anything, you know, berry, a fruit, a salad and avocado, et cetera. So that, uh, my wife, my wife arranged that in spades. Makes sense. I got one final quick question. Now we've never climbed. Not that I know of John for you. Um, Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney. Yeah. I don't know what that is, but right. uh, it's the tallest it's in, in the lower 48. Yeah. Tallest so, in the lower 48. So my brother and I just stupid story. We drove up, uh, had backpacks and we figured we could get from like, wherever uh like where the parking lot is to the summit and back down in the day and uh we we didn't and we got fucking stuck up there huddling together underneath like a tarp and we fucking (laughs) came down but like with zero gear like it was just uh, stupid kid stuff and uh we were fine but yeah we went up and down listen to your inner voice uh, <sighs> inner voice i keep going <laughs> uh, Dr. No. Jo- i'll tell you what dr john and i who i mentioned from the k2 story i told you we kind of a bunch of other stuff a very short aside uh I talked about a little bit in the book uh, 12, 12 hour walk but we we did the 50 high points world record like i said the 50 tallest peaks in the united states tallest in each state and we did it in 21 days mount whitney being the tallest in yep. california so we rocked that out and I think it was six, six and a half hours round trip. So it can't be done, my friend. You yeah. Know, you go back and run it back. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we didn't. Uh, it's usually a couple it, days. You usually yeah, camp yeah. up there and a whole thing. And, if yeah, we would have started it like at, uh, at like daybreak, but we got there at like maybe around like, uh, we thought like lunch, like yeah. uh, maybe You're 10 like, in the morning. It. And we figured we would just sprint <laughs> to the top and then back down. And, uh, we, yeah, we got, we totally got, it was fucking pitch black when we turned like, and then we got stuck youth, in man. that youth. That, yeah. That the meadow. Strength and the naivety of youth. Yeah. I yeah. know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. We, <laughs> we came down, we got stuck in that meadow and then we fucking huddled together and then woke up and like, I remember the sun coming up and we sprinted down, we got in this truck and we drove to like whatever, like Lone Pine, uh, yep. with like this, um, <laughs> like little cafe. And I remember I got like seven sides of bacon and like six <laughs> eggs and like i, I remember uh, the guy i was like hey i want four side orders of bacon this dude i just yeah we just fucking he's like are you it. expecting other people you know no me. no it's just, just me and my me. brother and then we yeah. uh, drank a huge thing of orange juice and then got in the car and drove back i, I uh my i must have been 14 perfect i, I was in high perfect. school my brother was probably no maybe 13 my brother was a senior so he was like 17 so i was 13 yeah like 13 17 Love it. Yeah. All, All right. right. So I right, said so final question. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of climbing movies out there, including K2 starring Michael Bain, who's that dude from Terminator, John Connor's dad. He's also in Navy SEALs. You'd recognize it if you saw him. Okay. I didn't know his name. I had to look it up. And then uh, Vertical Limit starring Bill Paxton and Chris O'Connell. 
Like, and then there's cliffhanger and Everest is, I think the latest one, but there's all these climbing survival dramas with some capers going on in the top of the mountains. I'm just curious of how realistic Hollywood is making these awesome survival drama heist movies. I love it. I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to ask you guys a question. I can't not get one question on you guys before I answer the final bonus round of how real is vertical limit, which is, so with the 12-hour walk, obviously it can be taken any single day, any single day, whatever, it doesn't matter. But book comes out on August 2nd, and I am trying to catalyze a group of people on September 10th to take the walk. The walk is done alone, but alone together alone, meaning a bunch of people are doing it on the exact same day around the world. The question for you guys is, you guys taking the 12-hour walk with me? Any day, but September 10th would be an exceptional invitation. Yeah, we'll do it. I'll do it. Mark it. Yeah, put it down. Boom. Yeah, I'm in. Boom. I love it. I love that. Amazing. All right. We got two more joining the global movement. My goal is 10 million. Okay. Two two less. Sweet. Um, So amazing. I love that. Thank you. Um, And I I can't wait to hear your experiences in the aftermath. So September 10th, you guys heard it here. These boys are joining me. Anyone listening, hopefully, uh, please join 12hourwalk.com. You can sign up completely free um other than i'll just send you some inspiration to kick you off um you can do it on any single day if september 10th doesn't work but that's the uh 12 hour walk day coming up after the book debut so the more important question vertical limit well first of all that's got of all those dramas that's got i mean to me i know cliffhanger might be more famous the lesser sloan whatever but vertical limit has this scene in it that all mountaineers all all mountaineers good mountaineers talk about which is there's this moment where Chris O'Donnell, he gets to a crevasse and he's like, I can't get to the other side of this crevasse. There's this whole subplot where they're like, there's explosives in the guy's backpack. And if it goes off, the whole thing's going to have that's whatever. That's a bunch of, you know, B and C plot line, but he gets this and he needs to get to the other side and he's running out of time before the explosive goes off. And so he takes two ice axes out in his hands. This guy's crampons on his feet and he runs and he jumps. And this gap is like 50, 50 feet across. So obviously he's Seems not going to get to the other side of the top of it. But he's going to, you know, he's going to fall into the crevasse until he hits the crevasse wall. And there's a scene where he's running and he's swinging both ice sacks in there like, wah! And then he just two ice axes in, front points his crampon, just sticks it into the wall. And then he just goes, kum, kum, one hand by hand, he climbs out of the crevasse. And so... In the class, first of all, the physics of that are impossible. There's a zero percent chance that that would ever work. But it's really difficult when you get to a massive crevasse. Like the actual mechanics of how you actually get across that. There's a few different techniques: ropes, or climbing down, or across, or way around it. In certain cases, you know, it's a, it's a big it's a big hazard. And there's never been a time where I've gotten a moment like that in the mountains where I haven't looked at it by and be like. Yo, man, should we just vertical limit this shit? Like, <laughs> Chris O'Donnell did it. He's uh, Robin. I honestly, like, I pulled it up. Like, I don't remember this movie. I, remember. I, I might never have seen this, but Cliffhanger. Yeah, to, I, I fucking love it. When Stallone's basically just hanging on one finger and the helicopter comes up, he's just hanging around. Just fucking yeah. jacked, like way too muscular. Yeah. Uh, first yeah. of all, any of the climbers I've ever seen, like, uh, you know, I've been like, you know, I grew up in Southern California, so like Yosemite and all that, you know, going out yeah. and seeing like the those dudes always look like uh, 
like really hungry hippie uh dudes that like you know 30 pounds too light like you know i mean yeah like stallone's yeah, fucking shit you're, you're, you're not you're not built like uh you're not built like a true rock climber i mean no. a lot of lot of weight but stallone's jack i will yeah so um but i will say on a, on a, another wreck uh that is a documentary if you haven't seen it i think it's on netflix the alpinist it came out this year it's a documentary about this guy and mark andre leclerc and it is i'm not going to tell you anything other than that but if you want to see a true you talk about storytelling a storytelling masterpiece um just take my word for it give it a watch the alpinist um and it, it'll give you a little more real realistic look than a vertical limit. But if you want a good laugh and you want, you know, some good Hollywood uh, drama, go check out vertical limit, but just don't, don't try that move the next time you end up at the edge of a crevasse. Cause I don't think you'll, you'll stick the landing. No, no <laughs> the physics aren't going to work on that one. Nope. Nope. I've seen too uh, as you were talking about it, one of my favorite, like we have a thing on power athlete. If you follow our Instagram, it's uh be the hammer where it's just like Friday where people are just fucking fucking themselves up and putting on social media. And my favorite one is there's always some lady and I know you've done rope swings like I have, but there's always some like overweight lady who's like on a hillside getting ready to do a rope swing to try to jump out. And as she goes, not realizing the physics of her body and her grip and just fucking slides down it and face plants on a fucking rock. Those are my favorites. I'm, I'm just imagining this one as you're jumping. You put the crimson and then the fact that you have to try to hold these handles with like, you know, 10 G's fucking a force going down. You're just... Yeah. Right at the bottom, gone. So yeah, the same thing. With, you know, what I'm talking about with like the oh yeah, like I the remember. heavy ladies on. I recall swings and just fucking face plants, and they're like, she gone. Yeah, <laughs> we watch a lot of movies. Classic, yeah. classic. Uh, well, I man, love it. I yeah, enjoyed our opportunity to um, talk about the twelve hour walk, and even more so when we get to act the twelve hour walk coming up in September, man. Uh, and if anybody doesn't know how to get a hold of you, which seems next to fucking impossible, uh, Instagram handle, email, websites, any. Yeah. Yeah. Hit me on Instagram. I'm at Colin O'Brady. This is my name. C O L I N O B R A D Y. Um, and to get everything, the 12 hour walk, check out 12 hour walk.com. We can download the 12 hour walk app. That'll help with that whole process, but it's as simple as walking out your front door, put your phone on airplane mode and committing to the 12 hours in solitude and silence. It's for anybody. You don't got to train for it. It's uh, you go one mile, you go 50 miles, but you maintain that solitude and silence. And there is a possible mindset on the other side that that mindset that says you can do anything. The possibilities are limitless. And uh, please, I'm so excited that two of you are joining on September 10th and invite everyone listening to sign up, get involved um, and, and come take the 12 hour walk. There's a lot to be gained by it. Uh, book comes out on August 2nd. If this comes out for you, you can pre-order it after that. You can get the book. Um, but yeah, 12 hourwalk.com at Colin O'Brady on Instagram. And uh, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure to hang with you guys. And I definitely look forward to following up with you guys on the other side of September 10th and hearing your individual stories, uh, you know, breakthroughs, curiosities on the other side of, of the 12 hour walk. Uh, it's a power, powerful experience for everyone. So yeah, I'm excited to, to follow up with you guys on that. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can learn more about Colin O'Brady and the books that he's authored by heading to colinobrady.com or following him on Instagram at Colin O'Brady. Until next time, bye!